Hi, everybody. I'm Josh Constein, your host of Press Club, where the big names in tech talk about the big ideas. And the biggest idea that was pretty much unescapable population health these last few years with the COVID-19 crisis, you know, the sudden need for mass testing, and also just the wake-up call that this gave us about our own health and how we need to have better insights about not only what's going on with us now, but what will happen to us tomorrow. And that's why I'm so excited to have with us today Othman Laraki, the co-founder and CEO of Color. They are the massive $4 billion health infrastructure giant. They were the rapid COVID testing sites that popped up all over the country, really saving the country when the government kind of hesitated on its responses. They also do incredible genetic testing to help you know about potential disease risks ahead of time. And they're also into antivirals and vaccines and really just taking a very broad approach to fixing health with a very data-minded approach. And that's what I'm so excited to have Othman here today with us. I'm Josh Constein, your host, former editor-at-large for TechCrunch, and now a venture partner at early stage fund SignalFire, where we have an MPS of 92 amongst founders. Come find out why founders love the help that we give. One of those portfolio companies is actually Color, so really excited to have you here as one of our portfolio companies, Othman. But I want to kick it to you and just ask straight up, you know, we're now a few months out of the COVID crisis, you know, Omicron's kind of died down. What is the state of health right now? What do you think really needs to be happening next? What do we need to be aware of? What is the kind of lay of the land? Yeah, well, first of all, Josh, thank you for having me and thank you for all the work that you and the Signal Fire team do. Like you've been uh, great supporters and uh, enablers of the work that we've been doing at Color. So maybe just taking a step back and thinking, okay, broadly, what is an attempt to summarize like the uh, crazy industry that healthcare is in the US? Um, there are a few kind of big picture things I would lay out. So first of all, you know, last two years, Priority one through 10 has been like COVID and how do we survive it? You know, how businesses stay open, how universities stay open and so on. So that's been, that was like, you know, the single top priority, top to bottom between public health, governments, universities, employers, and so on, because, you know, society relies on being open. So with things shutting down, I think that was a, so it's really almost like, I feel like a healthcare impacting the functioning of society. So that was like, you know, polarizing and aligning everyone around kind of like a clearer set of goals. And so that was, I think, like a, a dominant factor. I think now over the last, you know, couple of years, collectively have built the infrastructure and technology and vaccines and immunity as well to be able to effectively start restoring normalcy. So, you know, COVID now is becoming more of kind of this, you know, people call it endemic in the sense of like, it's probably here to stay. You know, we're going to need to manage it kind of like how we manage flu or, you know, other kind of like background diseases. So it's not something we can ignore, but it's not something that's going to dominate our, all of our lives, hopefully. But I think what's happening now, what's been interesting is that a lot of the prior challenges in healthcare have really kind of swung back into you know, the forefront of the agenda, but I think not in the same world as we left two years ago. I think actually the world has also been changed through COVID in many ways. And I can summarize a few of the ones that are most salient at least for the work that we do. First of all, I think one of the big things that we're seeing both in public health as well as with big employers and payers has been that, you know, a problem that existed before was healthcare being difficult to access in general, especially when you look at underserved communities. In the U.S., we're particularly bad at doing preventative care and managing diseases preemptively as opposed to waiting for people to show up in the ER and so on. And that was bad before. That's why, you know, we spend more per capita GDP than any, I think, uh, any other country in the world with worse outcomes. That was a problem. Because of COVID, 
all the prevention and kind of early management, et cetera, got even worse. And so now we're starting to hear much more again, like cancer used to be a big problem. Now it's like swung into being the top cost driver for self-insured employers. All the cardio kind of metabolic disease management, like, you know, managing hypertension, diabetes, et cetera. There's been kind of like a degradation, I think, overall in how we've managed all the things that relied on people kind of taking a few steps that weren't convenient before became drastically less convenient for a window of time. So I think we've had a really significant sliding back of the overall picture. And I think that's actually going to keep emerging as the data and as the kind of consequences of that kind of mature in some ways over the next like few years. So it's kind of, I think, one big dynamic. Is this frustrating to like see like happening in slow motion all around you when you know how important this is? And like, what are you guys doing on that front of trying to not only, you know, build yourself, but kind of motivate the industry around you? So I'm I'm an eternal optimist. So even when bad things happen, (laughs) I, I try to figure out like how to figure out how to, you know, turn that into progress and find progress and um, change effectively. But like, there's one negative side of obviously, and that's going to be, I think, very significant and that we are still underappreciating collectively is like the kind of burden of care that's like, you know, gotten worse. The flip side of it is that I think literally for the first time in our lived experience, especially in the US, hundreds of millions of people have experienced convenient healthcare. Literally to do simple things normally when we think about healthcare in the US, it's default inconvenient, you know, for women to get birth control or to get meds for a UTI or to vaccinate your kid or for any of these things that literally like when, when all said and done are truly simple. We're used to them being complicated and inconvenient and oftentimes expensive. And I think through COVID we've collected, and so this is not, and it's not just color, like, you know, we made our small contribution, but like, I think it is a true collective success that we've pulled off like a scale of distribution of basic healthcare services that would have seemed laughably ambitious three years ago. There have been billions of tests conducted in the U.S. in a fast and convenient manner. Could have been better, but it was still like, compared to anything else we've all experienced, was pretty, uh, you know, unreal. (laughs) We've vaccinated, you know, over 200 to 300 million people multiple times. These are things that like normally would have been seen as like moon landing style endeavors that actually have been done. And people have experienced them in a way that was actually relatively convenient. So I think people's expectations, and it's not just us consumers, but also doctors, payers, employers, they've all, I think, seen the art of the possible. Like, it's like, okay, you can actually do simple healthcare in a way that's simple and relatively inexpensive. And so I think that's actually a huge shift. And I think that also is going to be something that's going to mature in our expectations. Like, now as all of us are going back to, like, healthcare as usual, it's like, why do I have to go schedule a doctor's appointment and schlep over to just get a renewal of my thyroid medication or something like that, right? Like now those things seem like just unacceptably inconvenient. And I think it's almost like the emperor has no clothes for some of these things. And by the way, like in all these things, like I don't think anyone is acting in bad intent. Like, you know, like I think also in this industry, like there's oftentimes like, you know, it's like, oh, it's the payers or it's the pharma companies or the, you know, it's like, I think everyone's collectively trying to do the right thing. It's just that like the way in which like the pieces have evolved and grown over time converge towards a very, very suboptimal maximum (laughs) that we're kind of stuck at. And I think part of that is like a collective, like seeing like, look, you know, really it is unacceptable to make people jump through 20 hoops to get a vaccine, right? Like we've done it, worked really well. Now we can do it for all these other things. So I think that's one other big shift. I think the other kind of like, 
related big thing that's happening is, and in part, I think impacted by the economy and the labor shortages, et cetera, is like health systems as we know them are going to be under dramatic pressure over the next few years. Pre-COVID, most health systems, even though they make a huge amount of money, were generally like really barely solvent, like, you know, not very good businesses because of the cost burden and the amount of like bureaucratic overload, how expensive it is to manage billing, right? Like, you know, probably 25 cents of every dollar we spend in healthcare in the U.S. is literally just transaction costs. It has nothing to do with care. It's like literally just like the equivalent of your visa transaction, but it's 25% at a few basis points. Health systems in general, I think, were having a lot of trouble before now because of all the kind of like, you know, COVID change of habits, so many doctors leaving the workforce, inflation, et cetera. I think these are labor-intensive, heavy, heavy businesses, whether nonprofit or for-profit, but like their ability to remain solvent, I think, has dramatically gotten more difficult. And so I think the work that we see big health systems doing and primary care services doing, I think, is going to dramatically change. To me, it almost feels like almost like, you know, retail... As the internet was emerging, there are probably a lot of businesses that I think fundamentally were just already holding on by a thread before. And then like between the change in the economy and the availability of alternatives just kind of completely shifts, um, you know, how people receive certain forms of services. And I do think like, you know, basic healthcare will be one of these things. And I know I'm speaking my own book a little bit on this, but like, you know, obviously because I spend all my time thinking about this, but I do think that's actually super important because how do you manage hep C or diabetes or sexually transmitted disease management for underserved communities? Like, I think we came from a place that was not very good before, but I think in some ways the last two years resulted in a limping system to effectively break. It just, when we look back, I think it'll look sudden because you can look at a few years at, as a, in a compressed way. But I do think that's what's happening right now. That's awesome. So that's really helpful to understand that we're experiencing this like awakening of what's possible, but also realizing how much stress these systems are actually under. Overall, I felt like the private sector stepped up incredibly. You guys built these massive, massive testing sites, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that during COVID. And I'll say that the vaccine rollout did feel like it went pretty well. Like, it, you know, yes, sometimes it was hard to find an appointment, but overall it was all right. But maybe you could, can you just break down, like, why was the, the, the government feel like they broke on testing? so badly? Like, why do we not have that infrastructure in place? And what did you guys do? I would love to hear the story of like what it was like in the room when you're like, hey, we need to take over these giant ballpark parking lots and turn them into these the biggest COVID testing sites and, you know, or the biggest testing sites for any type of health we've ever seen in this country. I think a lot of our early reflexes were kind of based on some of a lot of the work that we had done before. For example, we, you know, run large research programs with the NIH and things like that. Where we, so we you know, had the experience of delivering kind of like what people think of as more cutting edge services, but to large populations. And one of the lessons that we had learned is that by default, and it's not just in healthcare, I think in general, we tend to be enamored and get captivated by magic, where, which we call it technology, <laughs> but where we, you know, like when we get really excited about AI or about, you know, genomics, et cetera, where people get really excited about, you know, scientific advances and like these kind of very like binary pushing of the boundaries of science and our capabilities. And we often see those as kind of like a panacea or kind of like something that turns a problem from being unsolvable to having been solved. What we found is that that's one, that's one half of the equation. The other half of the equation that is oftentimes actually 
takes much longer and turns out to be much harder and more expensive is actually the logistics and the implementation at scale. You know, doing simple things at massive scale is actually very complicated. And I think we have all of us and, you know, myself included, like default knee jerk, like tend to underestimate that. And so when kind of the early days of COVID, I think our first early, early days when, you know, no one knew anything, we all were like, you know, deers in the headlight. At the beginning, all of us were assuming that, you know, whether it's the government or like, you know, big science, you know, like, you know, some like the people in CDC or et cetera, were not in uncharted waters. And that the, there was a very clear and effective answer, quote unquote, that was going to happen. And almost like think of it as like this, you know, expecting a miracle. And relatively quickly, I think, you know, all of us started realizing like, no, no, like literally everyone does not know what's going on or what to do about it. And so one of the early steps for us and when we decided to really kind of get involved was like, okay, everyone is unqualified to deal with this. But if people like us, you know, we actually know how to build and run kind of lab tests and know the deep technology behind it. We know how to run testing, you know, and deliver basic health services to large populations. Others do as well. But like, you know, it is the mobilization. If, if this is not when we mobilize, when will we, right? Like, what is the event? You know, so that was more of a like, okay, like, this is a time where it is one of those like wartime moments when we are the people who are enlisted just by virtue of being only slightly more qualified than all of us unqualified people. So that was kind of like the really the kind of where we engaged. I think where we were a bit different, I think, than most is that the focus, uh, especially by the administration, was really around the science, right? Like, and also around like in the press, like, you know, you know, if you open the New York Times, like every three days, you'd see a front page story about like, Company X announces that it has received authorization or has validated this magical test Z that is now problem solved, right? And, you know, lo and behold, three days later, it's not a problem solved. And for us, like the, where we were really <laughs> focused is like having a, something working at small scale is one part, but like here it's like literally, okay, how do you go from zero to a thousand of like distributing access to something that is completely new and especially to underserved communities. Like, I mean, from our work, like what we knew too is like, you know, the white collar, well-to-do, yeah, sure, we had some troubles, but we we're going to be overall fine. The frontline people are the ones who are really going to get hurt the most and the kind of underserved or hourly workers and so on. And so that's really where we dove head first into like, how do you solve the large-scale logistics problems? And what are models that really work at scale? And so that really drove both our technology roadmap as well as our kind of operational approach and, and also our partnership approach. Like, you know, instead of, you know, going and trying to do things that were reasonably small scale, like we really focused on, okay, what are things that if we succeed, actually move the needle in a meaningful way. So that started really, you know, our work with the San Francisco Department of Public Health. And then that, you know, grew into California wide. We also had a lot of relationships with the Broad Institute and Harvard and MIT and in the Cambridge area. So we started doing some work in Massachusetts as well. But then it kind of just like propagated from there. But it was really, I think, driven by this kind of focus on really just kind of solving the access and logistics problem, um, which, by the way, like I think is really non-unique to COVID. That's the interesting part for me that's I do think is a very big change, I think, pre and post, is that the point I was making earlier, which is like, it is eminently doable to do basic healthcare in a truly scalable and accessible way. And really that's changed color in a very fundamental way. I think we had a lot of intuitions about it and a lot of ambitions about it before, but in a narrow way. And I think this experience has really shown us and helped us also substantiate what could have taken us a decade to prove 
that you can actually do this for these incredibly different types of services, whether it's like testing and then we do vaccinations. Now we also do like these really massive test to treat programs for, you know, people statewide, if they get COVID and we're actually expanding to other diseases within a few minutes, you have your diagnosis, you can get your medication either delivered to you or you go to a local pharmacy and pick it up. That should be a solved problem. <laughs> uh, and, you know, really that's, I think like where we're focusing all of our effort is simple things, but done at massive scale. Could you just give us a sense of that scale, maybe by telling me, like, how many tests have you guys run? How many sites? Like, just give us a sense of, like, just how big this got. Tests in last year, about um, 25 million or so. Like, thereabouts, like, I, I don't have the exact numbers under, in front of me right now. We're running over about over 13,000 sites across the country. And these range from public schools, universities, workplaces, churches, prisons, libraries, fire stations, because also the, 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 and, you know, to also frame of reference there, it's like, you know, that's more sites than there are Walgreens in the U.S. In this model, you can do it without, you know, paying rent and, you know, buying these locations where we build the infrastructure and the, the delivery system to enable these sites. And this model, I think you can get a much, much higher, almost like edge density of healthcare than in our traditional bricks and mortar way, right? Like, you want basic health services not to be things that you need to go get, but that show up as part of your life. And so, and that's, I think, you know, what I'm most proud of of the work that we've done, but I think also where the opportunity for impact like is even larger going forward is how do you make it so that people don't need to take time off work or change, you know, their kids' schedules and so on to take care of all the basics, right? How do you make those just intersect with your life? So you have this sort of epiphany of your own potential for scale, which I think is so exciting. The idea that maybe these things that we didn't think we were fully qualified for maybe at the start or that like nobody had ever done before, you proved were doable. You know, what are some of the really exciting things on the horizon that that has spawned the sense of like that sense of confidence or that ambition? What are some of the things that like, maybe they're even a little bit sci-fi that people might be excited to hear about that, that you guys are working on next? First of all, I mean, just kind of, you know, for everyone who's been an entrepreneur or started things, I mean, it's like, I think in all these, especially in these kind of like hyper compressed timelines and so on, like, you know, you're white knuckling it the entire way, right? Especially when you're doing things for the first time, right? Like the first like major, you know, whether it's testing sites or first time we're vaccinating people or delivering medications and so on. It's all the unknown unknowns that are the scariest, right? And so you try to control for all the known variables, but, you know, you're always worried that you're missing, you know, super important things. And, uh, and you know, th thankfully, I think, you know, we've managed to um, thread that needle reasonably well. Going forward, like what I'm excited about sounds so pedestrian at some level and sounds like really non-exciting to a lot of people. But, you know, some of the biggest opportunities are all of the basics, right? Like how do you, you know, we're putting a lot of work on the cardiometabolic side. So we have very good ways to diagnose hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol. We know that a lot of people die from heart attacks. And we know that there are a lot of consequences of, you know, like, you know, kidney failures, like one of those expensive things that happen in the U.S. and so on. And we have very good and effective ways to deliver those. But the problem is that we don't. So I'm really excited about the work that we're doing there in terms of like early diagnosis and management of people before they need to go to the hospital. So, you know, I think cardiovascular, cardiometabolic disease, I think, is a huge area. Connected to our roots, you know, where we came from as a company, there's a very similar picture on cancer. So early cancer screening, early interventions. Over the last few years, there have been a lot of new tools and diagnoses that have been developed that, you know, can be much more edge distributed. 
like, you know, how do you make HPV testing very accessible? How do you, you know, et cetera. So that's kind of, uh, you know, one big block. Infectious disease, very similarly, I think for, you know, managing HIV, managing, you know, like other STI. Actually, that's one another example of something that's gotten way worse through the pandemic that is partially a, an access, in a big way, an access problem and somewhere where there's a lot of inequity across like, you know, demographic groups and especially in the U.S. And then mental health, again, very similarly, it's like there are a lot of things that are hard at the end of one in mental health, but there are also a lot of things that can be done around early access, basic access that can really help people, you know, way earlier in their experience before they need kind of acute care. And so like the way I look at it, it's actually like, you know, this, like the, the surface area of like our core healthcare and thinking of us as effectively, you know, a health system that's built first for public and population health, like the knowledge we have collectively and so on, what does that look like? You wouldn't first start off going and building expensive buildings and hiring armies to manage reimbursement with payers and armies of doctors, right? Like you would actually, I think, start it in a hyper-distributed way, in part because I think of the realization over time that one of the biggest challenges is the access challenge for basic health services. And so like when I think about what's ex- most exciting for me and, and for color is basic essential healthcare access, but really kind of continuing to build that footprint and the capabilities to do more for more people in, a, in as equitable of a way as possible. So really reaching people that by default, we assume will be left out of quote unquote normal healthcare. Okay, so I want to zoom out a little bit and hear a little bit about the origin story of Color Health, because most people might not know that before this, you were running a startup, you got acquired by Twitter, you were a VP of product at Twitter in the like the very early days when it was just scaling up. And then suddenly it feels like you kind of did this big pivot towards health. Maybe you could just tell us that story and also maybe where there are more overlaps than people realize, especially given you're both dealing with like these enormous graphs of people like social networks. Mm-hmm operate on the scale of population health. It's an interesting parallel. I started a company, it was called Mixer Labs. We were one of Twitter's early acquisitions. I think we joined Twitter when it was about 80 or 90 people and was there through a uh, you know, pretty amazing window of time when it was you know, really you know, reaching very broad populations, uh, you know, figuring out how to pay down its sins of technology and get rid of the fail whale and things like that. <laughs> uh, and uh, that was, a, I think, sidebar and kind of like, I think the how we manage social networks and, you know, or all the kind of like components of how we communicate in, in this kind of new world. And it's kind of like the consequences of it and how we, you know, improve that, that model. But that's kind of, I think that that's maybe a separate conversation, but I think like for me, I mean, where it really emerged initially was actually, I had never expected to work in healthcare, but I'd had a fair amount of cancer history in my family. My mother is a two time breast cancer survivor. My grandmother passed away from breast cancer and, well before actually even Twitter, I found out that I was, both my mother and I are carriers of a mutation, a gene called BRCA2 that increases people's risk of a variety of cancers. And so I had an interest in it from a just personal and scientific curiosity standpoint, where I was kind of trying to understand it. And so I really started off with a focus on genetics, but the mindset there was like, historically healthcare seemed like not being something that was in the remit of technologists. It was, it seemed like a, a science and medicine problem. And so, you know, software is not going to be a solution to anything in healthcare from as far as I knew. And with genetics, it was, it seemed interesting because it was something that was fundamentally a, seemed like a data and technology problem and opportunity. So that made it interesting. Well, 
ended up evolving was actually quite different than what I expected, which is as I got to know healthcare and built experience trying to build a company that was based on good technology and good consumer experience, realizing that the science was actually the easy part at some level. It was much more the logistics and the business of healthcare. How do you make it work to get things like services to people and do it in a way that really scales? I think where it connected a lot with my technology experience was in a prior life, I was an early product manager at Google and worked on a number of products there. And one of them was for all the older people on the clubhouse. Uh, like I worked on the, one of the products I worked on was uh, the Google toolbar. The reason we have search boxes in the browser is because when Google had the toolbar, we realized that it drove a huge amount of traffic, like something like half of our search volume was actually coming from this plugin that we had made. And through that experience, I think, and but also echoed through a lot of the, you know, other consumer work that I did with Twitter and others is one of the biggest realizations is that the easiest way to make people do anything is not to scare them, not to bribe them, not to even to try to reason with them and convince them. It's literally to reduce friction. It's the most predictable, scalable, and effective way. Even with low friction, it's hard to make people do something they fundamentally don't want to do, but like it is incredibly consistent that if you make something simpler and lower the transaction cost, but not financial cost, but like the effort, right? Like taking you from needing to type google.com, I go to the homepage and type a search versus just typing it in your browser, had a huge lift on search. Like it's the same reason why Amazon has a one-click checkbox. Like I think there are all these like rest of our experience as consumers to the internet. Some of the biggest like successes and moves have been driven by friction reduction, and I feel that's actually one of the things that is the biggest gap and biggest source of opportunity in healthcare is like, how do you take these things that we all assume are these like disparate frictionful experiences and make them frictionless? And I think that's in some ways what, what was forced to happen through COVID that I think opens the eyes for all the other parts of healthcare that I think enable us to strive for that model. And so to me, that's actually literally the single most important takeaway that I got from my internet life uh, and that I think is the most applicable for healthcare. That's so fascinating because to me, it almost seems like if you zoom out, you realize that all of the bureaucracy, all of the complexity, it's all actually just kind of masking these parallel UX problems. And that it's really hard to get to the bottom of the UX problem with data when you have all these confounding factors. And social networks have it somewhat easy. You have all this hyper granular data. You know exactly where in the funnel somebody dropped off. You know exactly what they clicked or didn't. And that can help you refine those processes. But it felt like healthcare has never had that same kind of approach. And, you know, I hope your parents, everyone's really proud of you because even though you ended up not being a doctor, I feel like you've probably helped more people <laughs> at scale than most doctors even get to simply with that ethos of reducing friction. And that kind of brings me to the next question of like, what else about the healthcare system or ecosystem in general do you think really has that like very blatant friction that needs to be destroyed? And I'll just throw out there that I think like the current food system in America is just horribly broken. The idea that it's easier and cheaper to eat food that's horrible for you that gives you low energy, that causes all these health problems. The fact that that's so much easier, more convenient, has lower friction than high quality foods or things that even if they might have to cost a little bit more, or even if you can get them to cost the same, are just hard to access between food deserts, uh, you know, the long times it might take to do actual like grocery shopping and food prep and cooking. So I've, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that or any other areas where you think like the friction is just blatant and ready to be disrupted. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think your point about food, I think in some ways, like, you know, at the end of the day, right, like, it's how do you make a market that is 
highly functional and liquid, and that actually represents the true cost and benefit and value of the underlying whatever is being delivered. For example, like the fact that we subsidize corn farming and uh, high fructose corn syrup is kind of like, you know, it's literally, you know, the way you save, increase your margins at the food manufacturers by stuffing more corn into food because it's cheaper. We are influencing the market. In some ways, like I don't think we should expect a market to operate in a way that's economically irrational because of social general benefit, right? In general, right? Like, you know, in some ways, like, you know, shame only goes so far. At the end of the day, humans will rationalize pretty much everything, right? And so I think we will build an edifice of rationalization around like whatever incentives <laughs> we have in front of us. And so I think partially is like, what are things that we make a good business versus a bad business? And try to tilt those towards the things that are socially, like in factor the, the externalities and the social good into the cost of what we do. And at least at a minimum, not do the opposite, right? Like where we subsidize things that hurt us. And I think, you know, like climate is, you know, obviously like, you know, very big example of that as well. But like, I think in healthcare, right, there's always a, a desire or a quest to try to find the thing and, the, you know, the problem that fixes everything. And I think for something to be this broken and this bad, like it is not a consequence of a single sin. It is a layers and layers of unintended consequences that have a lot of like, stratification and connective tissue that make it incredibly difficult to, you know, yank them out, right? Like one of the things that is very problematic collectively is the mechanism of paying for health services in general. And so I think we all assume that the way you transact in healthcare services is through insurance. But in reality, like insurance, like this, like that word, like I think we, we've somewhat inadvertently, like for good reasons initially, probably, and then, you know, evolved into, but now we're paying for some of the unexpected consequences, is that what we call insurance in the U.S. really bundles two concepts. It bundles the who, risk, who bears the risk, like, you know, paying for healthcare in general across the world, even in the U.S., is a so, relatively socialized expense, like in the same way that, you know, most places in the world do, we collectively pay for roads and we collectively pay for electricity <laughs> or at least power stations. And etc. Like I think in many ways, like healthcare is fundamentally that in the entire world, including the US, like, you know, in the US, we subsidize it, we have different mechanisms to make ourselves believe we don't do that. But like, you know, fundamentally, we give tax, you know, reasons for employers to cover healthcare. Fundamentally, we pay for it in one way. The other thing we do when we call insurance in the US is also the mechanism of transaction. It's literally like the equivalent of your visa card, right? And I think that bundling of those two things is Related, I think, to one of the biggest issues, which is we have an inordinate amount of cost and friction that is a side effect of any transaction, right? Like, it's literally like if you had to do a home loan application to pay for your coffee, you would just buy much less coffee. And we have a transaction that's on that level of burden as opposed to swiping your, your credit card, lack of friction, right? And so I think that is one of the things that is getting unbundled progressively. I think it's going to be a long road. Like it's not going to be one thing that's going to, we're all going to switch healthcare to being traded on Bitcoin. And it's going to be, <laughs> and, and like, you know, all, all the pairs are going to, you know, go home, right? Like it, that's not going to happen. I think, but what, I think there is a lot of pressure to evolve, like how we pay and bundle for services and different types of services and separating risk dollars from transactional dollars. And how do you, you know, like literally when you, woman gets birth control, more money is spent on, the billing and the kind of all of the overhead 
then the pill is that cost a few cents, right? Like I think the unwinding of that is happening through the consumerization of healthcare, people's expectations. It's happening through this rebundling of services. Like, you know, we're doing a lot of direct work with major employers, with public health departments. I think in many industries, actually, like one of the effects of technology is kind of interesting is like it goes through this iteration of bundling and unbundling. When it's time to scale, when there's a model that works and it's very profitable, it gets in some ways bundled into a unit vertically. And then over time, it gets calcified and, you know, it aggregates too much kind of of the social rents. And then you unbundle it through a new generation of technology horizontally. And I think that's really what's happening where things that color does is that we take the doctor, the test and the medication and, and really push them into, for you, a single experience, right? Like, it's not like, oh, I need to go see my doctor and then they send me over to Quest and then, and then I have to go deal with a pharmacy. How do you turn that into one single thing that you experience that is convenient and integrated? I hesitate to use world culprit. It's more, I think, opportunities of moving from this local maximum that's very not good for us. <laughs> I mean, I, I would t- totally agree. But I also think that part of it is that bundling with healthcare or with, uh, with employment. The idea that like, oh, if I lose my job or if you know, there's an economic recession, there's some problem, it's harder for me to get a job. I'm suddenly uninsured and I'm in this like this crisis mode where I, you know, if anything happens to me, I could be liable for this unbelievable cost. That to me just seems really problematic. And it really, I think, contributes to the way that Americans treat work and think of it as like this end-all, be-all identification of who they truly are and this validation of their self-worth. Because it's not just the validation of your self-worth, it's literally what's keeping you alive in some cases. And I think that that's, that's massively problematic in its own right. What are you guys excited about that you're building personally about the future? Like what feels like it's the furthest on the horizon or maybe the most ambitious thing that you guys are building right now beyond some of the do simple things? things at massive scale, which is ambitious in its own right. But, you know, there's, is there anything a bit further flung that you're, you're personally getting like jazzed about? Actually, before, before jumping to that, actually, just one comment about the employer point. I think it was kind of interesting with all these things. I think it's, it's always a kind of trade-offs. I think one thing that's actually been evolving, and I think the pandemic actually has pushed a lot is, and again, you know, people can feel differently about it, but it's, it's an observation that I think is interesting just observation about the current state of reality. And so, and, you know, we can have, people can have different opinions about it. And I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, in between I feel, but like fundamentally, like I think we went from employers being effectively just like they pay, you know, help cover the insurance to I think employers having a much more existential relationship to the health of their employees, both through COVID, but also mental health. And now increasingly these other kind of chronic conditions and so on where, because we don't have like a background safety net and a background system that is like provides good healthcare for everyone. And by the way, this goes all the way from like poultry farmers and, you know, truck driver unions, all the way to like fancy Silicon Valley companies. All of the employers have this deep kind of connection now with how existentially they're related to the health of their employees. And one side of it that's kind of like, look, you know, it's good people to have a separation of life and work, et cetera. So like, you know, is your employer responsible for your mental health? It's kind of like, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, there are reasons for reasons against, but I mean, the reality is it is the single most important asset any employer has are the people in, in the building, but also having employers have an important role to play as participants in society, I think is overall beneficial in general. Like, I think it's something where in America, in a capitalist environment, The enterprise is where we have 
decided to allocate a huge amount of like social and economic power and having that power connected to the well-being of society, I think is actually a, a reasonable consequence of that. You know, it's almost like with great power comes great responsibility kind of aspect like where I think that's actually a reasonable connection to have that as an employer, your stake in people and their health and their well-being is very important. And there's a side note, I think there's a very broad range of reasonable sentiments about that, but I think it's just, a, just an observation of the reality of that we are living. With regards to, you know, the things that I'm excited about that we're, that we're working on, we're actually doing a lot of interesting things like scientifically that I'm really excited about. Like HPV is a very big problem. How do you do HPV testing in a way that's like hyper-scalable, hyper-accessible? How do you make it possible to know whether people have high cholesterol or pre-diabetics, et cetera, and like in a very kind of like scalable and accessible way. I think my team will kind of strangle me if I, uh, if I just kind of like start pre-announcing things uh, on the call. <laughs> but like, I think those are important and actually like really interesting, like technology and problems that are really interesting and important to solve and where there's a big role for science and technological development to happen. The other part that I think is also, to me, feels almost more of a, an integration service challenge in some ways that I'm really excited about is to take these things that we are all trained to think of as being splintered and turning into a consolidated experience, right? Like, you know, how do you make it effective for you to get updated on all your immunizations and know whether you are, have any kind of like prediabetes and if so, like start managing it like all but part of like one thing and where you're not like say, you know, experiencing like this fractured multi-step process, I think is really interesting product level work that we're very actively working on. It's not going to be one, like one day we're going to launch and it's like, it's okay, like this is perfect now. But I think it's a very long arc of continuous improvement. I think that I'm super excited about, you know, the other part that I just kind of like, uh, as we're talking, you know, different things that we're working on are uh, coming to mind that to me are also exciting is like, I think for a lot of cases too, like healthcare is not one size fits all, no matter who you are, right? Like, you know, if you or I, et cetera, go to UCSF or Kaiser or Stanford or whatever. When we walk in, you are no longer a signal fire or a color or a employee or a homeless person. You are a Stanford patient. And there's a big pressure and effort to normalize and least common denominator across all of us. And I think one of the opportunities to create like the kind of service experience design that is how do you enable a centralized organization like Color to deliver services on people's terms and that are related to the communities and the populations. Like what I mean is like, for example, like the work, some of the work we do with vaccines, like so to just to give you a concrete example you know, we have done a lot of vaccine work with the state of California across black churches. And the interesting thing there, you know, and that's been incredibly rewarding and something we're really proud of was like, it's not you show up into colors world and it's like just color people that are doing that. Just we just happen to be in a black church. Like the model there is like with community based organizations. We actually did that a lot with in San Francisco, too, with the Latino task force and so on. How do you build a health system? that does not expect like the four walls and only your people to be doing everything, but rather how do you build a health system that is designed so that it is in community healthcare that is for and by the community so that people are served by people that are like them, that they trust, that they want to be served by rather than needing to go to this other institution, this, you know, et cetera, to serve you. They don't feel like 
big like singular technology oh, steps, but rather I think I think are super important and I think the types of things that can have a huge impact. That's amazing. So in a minute, I'm going to give you the last word of just like what else people can do participating themselves in helping prevent or fight that next pandemic. You know, as we talked about over the last few years, we were just trying to kind of survive COVID. But now we've really gotten to this part that it's really reminded everybody just how ambitious we really can be. That like when the private sector steps up, when the government pitches in, there are amazing things we can do. I mean, you guys administered 25 million tests last year across 13,000 sites. That kind of scale population health I don't think people really thought was possible and luckily you are an internal optimist but with that optimism I'm excited to see you guys tackle how do we bring that same level of access and scale to other things like cancer treatment and detection hypertension diabetes heart disease you know we have an even mental health we have the early warning signs for these things we're just not actually using them and I think these things kind of seemed like a moon landing before and now they're like totally in the Overton window of things that we can do next that said, like the health system still is is going under this dramatic pressure. Like as you mentioned, that was kind of the state of the union right now. That with doctors quitting, with inflation, this massive labor intensive problem was already a bad business that was kind of struggling as is. You know, we really need to find ways to lessen those burdens and get rid of some of that bureaucracy. And I think especially around payers and the way that people pay for healthcare is just an abomination right now. We're spending so much money on overhead, so little on what actually matters, and it's become so inconvenient that people just don't even want to go out there and get healthcare. And I love your ideas about your experiences working at Google and then selling a company to Twitter really taught you about how just removing a little bit of friction can have a massive impact on access, on usage, and on the outcomes for these kind of people and patients. And, you know, I'm really excited about that your own personal experiences with, you know, having this genetic risk factor really excited you about this kind of problem and brought that technologist mindset to it. And because of that, I think you actually have had more impact than a lot of doctors, even if you never went to med school. And, you know, I think what's next that I'm really excited about is seeing you guys help communities step up themselves and it not just be something that's top down, but that it's bottoms up, that it's middle out, that like everybody participates in these systems together. And that if we can especially reform some of the ways that this is paid for, we can get back to the idea that like what matters first is the care, not just who is ending up profiting about this. And yes, as you mentioned over and over, it didn't might not seem so ambitious to do small, simple things at a massive scale, but that's really how you turn the tide of health because it's about every single one of us. And how do we make a good business out of something that matters to the world that makes us healthier instead of a bad business, whether that's in the food system, whether that's in how uh, insurance works. I think that is really going to be what turns the tide for health. So thank you so much, Atman Laraki, the co-founder and CEO of Color. And give us your final word. What can people out there do to help make sure the next pandemic either doesn't happen or fight it when it does. Thank you so much for having me and, uh, you know, really uh, appreciate the time. I mean, just kind of, you know, like looking forward, I mean, I think whether a new pandemic happens or not uh, is probably not something we have direct agency over. But I think what we do have agency over is more what we do about it if and when it does happen. Frankly, like, you know, I think the biggest collective effort we make is also in the impact on information and one of the other big hurdles aside from logistics was like, you know, people's minds and beliefs around, you know, is the vaccine bad for me, right? Like, aside from like, you know, access, you know, the other big, big burden has been actually the misinformation around the risks of the vaccine or does it even work, et cetera. Et cetera. Like, I think actually that was maybe the, the other part of it that's, you know, it's not just healthcare people, let's say it is a collective thing. And I think like, you know, over the last few years, I think 
in part because of social media, but also I think like even, you know, general mainstream media, et cetera. Like I think we have made truth much more difficult. And also, by the way, it, truth is not like eternal or universal oftentimes. Truth around like, you know, belief in uncertain times and how do we increase the level of informed belief across society. I think like literally the most important thing I think most people could do actually is to try to consume a healthy media diet and try to systematically not consume it from the polarized sources. I think that is like actually, frankly, you know, (laughs) one of the biggest like, you know, things that also hurts, you know, healthcare, but other aspects is like, you know, I think that we have collectively gotten much worse at getting educated beliefs on things that are ambiguous and, and relatively dynamic. And I think that affects healthcare a lot. That's incredible advice. So, you know, make sure that you are staying informed, keep your community informed, look for well-cited sources that really understand what they're talking about. And remember that we're all kind of in this together, that this is something that, you know, it's not, you know, I think if anything, the pandemic taught us that we are more interconnected than we could ever realize. And it really has to be everybody's part. So thank you so much for being here with us today on Press Club, where the big names in tech talk about the big ideas. Thank you for being a portfolio company of Signal we love helping you guys. We're an early stage fund writing weed checks seed to series B. If you want help with recruiting, go to market efforts, a PR advisory system from me. would love to hear about what you're building. Come out and reach out to us. But otherwise, I just want to thank you again, Altman, for taking some time. I know you have so many important things to do, so many lives to help save. So really appreciate you spending some time with us and giving us this state of the union of what's going on in health and how we can fight the next pandemic. Thanks again for me, Josh Constein, your host here from Signal Fire at Press Club, where the big name in tech, talk about the big ideas. We will catch you next week. Thanks again.